Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A global pandemic. Over 16,000 Americans dead. And over 17 million Americans have lost their job. And global energy markets crushed by collapsing oil prices. These are extraordinary times in which we live. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I'm Michael Knowles. Senator, you're starting us off on a little bit of a downer there, but I guess we're living in fairly down times. I want to focus in on something you said there about the energy markets, because last I checked, oil was trading at something like $22 a barrel. I mean, it was very, very low. And I think for most people, the interaction we have with the oil industry is when we fill up our gas tanks. So low oil prices are not necessarily a bad thing when we look at it. What are we missing here? Well, I think right now we're facing three different crises all at the same time. We've got a global pandemic, the coronavirus crisis. We're all familiar with the cases, the deaths, and and we're taking extraordinary steps to try to stop the spread of that virus. There's an economic crisis, a a disaster. 17 million people in the last three weeks have filed for unemployment. We've seen entire industries decimated, and and that's producing enormous damage. But at the same time, you've, you've got energy markets, and in particular, the global price of oil has dropped more than in half. And the consequence of that is, is it potentially risk bankrupting most, if not every, American energy producer. And, and particularly in my home state of Texas, that's devastating. But, but if you end up seeing American energy producers driven out of business, 
that also has massive implications in terms of you and me paying higher prices at the pump in, in years to come, and also geopolitically, making us dependent on foreign countries in a way that we just now managed to get free and independent from. So what you're saying is we shouldn't be celebrating maybe a little dip in the gas prices right now, because in the long term, financially, that could really hurt us. And also it has these national security implications that look pretty bad down the road. I just want to point out something you said, Senator. You said you flew out and met with the president. You met with the president specifically because of this energy crisis. That's how bad it's gotten. No, that's exactly right. On Friday, I, I got on a plane on, on a United uh, commercial flight that was practically empty. There, yeah. there were only maybe 10, 15 of us on it. Flew up to D.C., went, went to the White House, had a two-hour meeting. And we're all from states that are big energy producers. And, yeah. and, and we started by writing a letter to the Saudi ambassador. Then a couple of weeks ago, we did a conference call with the Saudi ambassador, nine of us. I, I got to tell you, it was the most bare-knuckled, candid conversation <laughs> really? I've ever had with a foreign leader in eight years in the Senate. Can you give and, us a little and, behind and the curtains here? I, I can. So we're on a conference call with the ambassador. Here's what I said. I said, listen, no state in the union does more business with Saudi Arabia than Texas. And right now, you're taking advantage of a global health pandemic to try to screw and bankrupt people across Texas. And, and it is devastating. And, and, and the 13 of us who signed on to the letter as a matter of national security have, have consistently been allies of the Saudis. Saudi is an important counterpart to Iran. Iran and the Ayatollah are really dangerous for national security. But I said, listen, you know, we, we've been with you, but you're now trying to bankrupt people in my state. And, and that is not going to stand. Now, here's the Saudi ambassador's defense. But Russia, but Russia. <laughs> And, they and sound I like said, the mainstream look, media for the last three years. <laughs> uh, well, well, they do. They, 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 uh, and, and, and I said, listen, Russia's our enemy. We know that. They behave like our enemy. We treat them as our enemy. You're supposed to be our friend. You want us to treat you like Russia? Fine. Yeah. You want to be our enemy? <laughs> How about we pull up all our soldiers out of Saudi Arabia? We pull our Patriot missiles out there because every time someone screws with you in the Middle East, you pick up the phone to call the American military and say, save our asses. Well, then don't bankrupt people in my state. And I was pissed. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, it was interesting. That call, uh, I think it got, the, in fact, I know it got their attention. So you and I, we've invited a guest. It's, it's a longtime friend of mine, Will Van Lowe. Uh, Will is the CEO of Quantum Energy Partners. Now, that is an $18 billion private equity energy fund. Uh, Quantum is the third largest driller in North America. Uh, and I got to tell you, Will is someone who knows the energy markets as well, if not better than anyone I know. And so in the last couple of weeks, as I went up to meet with the president and major energy CEOs last week, Will was someone we literally spent probably six, seven hours on the phone trying to understand what's happening here and the real threat to jobs and, 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 and to energy security in our country. And so, Will, welcome to Verdict. Will, for so many years, we complained about how we're dependent on the Middle East for energy. We, we are totally trapped uh, for energy. And yet this technology helped to lead us away from that and get us to what I guess we'd call energy independence until maybe five minutes ago. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and I think that is a huge, when you think about the, the United States has had more wells drilled in it than the rest of the world combined. That's wow. a pretty amazing statistic to think about. And when it comes to shale, do we have a lot of it here? Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, probably 95% of all shale production in the world is in the United States. Part of that's due wow. to, our, to our geology, 
right? So they've tried it, for example, in Europe. They don't have the same rocks over there. Now, there's other parts of the world where there's a lot of shale, but those are parts of the world that typically have a lot of conventional oil and gas as well. And if you don't need to drill, it costs more money to drill wells unconventionally, horizontally, and put the big fracks on them. So places like in the Middle East, where they have a lot of conventional production, they don't need to, to drill horizontal wells. So the last 10 years, we have this technological innovation. We, we discover how to access massive reserves that were there, but we didn't know how to get to it. Right. Um, and suddenly America passes everybody. We pass Saudi Arabia, we pass Russia, we become the top producer in the world. Who is it that drove that? And, and is the energy industry, um, look, I think a lot of people think of energy and they think of big oil. They think of a couple of, you know, giant companies, Exxon and Shell and, you know, these giant companies. Is, is that who did this innovation? No. And that's, you know, that's the interesting thing because so much of the dialogue right now in Washington is involving the, the Exxons and the Chevrons of the world. And they're certainly big players in Shell today. But they didn't drive the innovation. It was actually the independents that drove that innovation in the United States. So what's an independent? Um, well, an independent is basically an oil and gas company that's not a major. So the, the majors are typically integrated companies. They're the largest companies in the world um, in, in terms of, of, of pr uh, publicly or privately owned, outside of government-owned uh, oil companies. And, and these majors, I mean, they're, they're massive. I mean, some of them, they have GDPs that rival companies. So, well, they do. Like Our Exxon, for example, rather. they produce over 4 million barrels a day, right? Uh, there's only a couple, there's only a handful of countries in the world that produce over 4 million barrels a day. But the shale revolution was started and, and driven by independence. And independence, you're talking, you and I both spent a lot of time out in Midland, Texas. You're right. talking sometimes 5, 10, 20 guys in, in a little office who are raising some money and going out and drilling holes and innovating. That's what drove this entire revolution and changed the entire geopolitics? It did. And, and, and to be fair, the, the technology was probably driven more by the larger public independence. Companies like Chesapeake, companies like Pioneer, those types, they drove the technology. But the, the smaller independents were very quick to get in and really... Um, take that, and they, they're much more nimble than the public companies. So they take the big, the, the, the big technology revolutions, and then they do a lot of evolutionary changes in that technology, and and they get it out there very quick, and they're and they're able to access large amounts of land, and so the independence, both the public, the larger public independence, as well as the thousands of, of smaller kind of mom and pop independents, they're really the ones that are, have made this this uh, independence of energy possible in now, this country. Now, Will, I don't want to rain on your parade here, but this sounds too good. This sounds too good to be true right now because you've, you've got this great energy revolution here. You're empowering so many people, American ingenuity, and then the prices all plummet. So I, I understand how it worked out so well. What went wrong? Well, um, let's let's back up a little bit. And you think about prices plummeting. Prices plummeted from about $60 a barrel at the beginning of the year down to about $20 a barrel a few weeks ago. Now they're up in the mid to high 20s now. Um, but let's not forget before the shale revolution started in 2008, oil was $147 a barrel. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah, hold, hold on a second. $147 a barrel. <laughs> 
and then it came down to $50, $60 a barrel, and now it's plummeted to the 20s, is right. that right? And, and through American innovation and ingenuity, we were able to get the cost. Initially, these shale wells were very expensive, and you didn't recover a lot of hydrocarbon. And through a lot of science, through a lot of just innovation and trial and error, we were able to meaningfully perfect, if you will, the way we drilled and completed these wells. And we got the, the cost down to a level where at 50 to $60, the U.S. oil and gas companies can make a, a, a respectable profit. Um, and the industry for the last four or five years has, has been chugging along. And, and $50 to $60, look, most of us don't buy a b barrel of oil, so, the, so that number doesn't mean anything to us. What does that mean, $50, $60 oil, what does that mean in terms of a gallon of gas at the gas pump? And understanding a lot of the cost of gas is actually taxes, right? Um, and those don't change. So 3 three to $4, depending on the state and city you live in, is what $50 to $60 oil trends. So Michael will pay a lot more in California <laughs> yeah, than we will $10. in Texas. He will yeah. absolutely pay more. <laughs> Uh, although I don't know that you need to fill your electric scooter, Michael, so that may <laughs> that's, help. That's the thing. We actually just run on moonbeams out here, so we don't need any sort of energy. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, though, is you, you don't want the price of oil to be so expensive that it's going to kill us all at the pump, but you also don't want the price of oil to be so low that you put all of these companies out of business. You want there to be some uh, medium in there. Uh, what are the odds that we're going to be able to get back to that before the American energy industry is just destroyed? Yeah, you know, right now it's not looking good. Um, it's not looking good for two reasons. One was Saudi and Russia have decided they were going to basically launch a, a market share war on the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, and as Senator Cruz said a minute ago, you know, the U.S. went from being a huge energy importer. You know, we imported more than 12 million barrels a day uh, less than a decade ago to literally over the last six months or so, we given on any given week, we will export or import a few hundred thousand, you know, so we'll be a net exporter, a net importer of maybe a hundred or 200,000 barrels, right? And so that, if you think about that, and you think about the impact on our economy, that's depending on the price of oil, but say at $50 oil, that's about $250 billion a year that stays here in the U.S., hmm. that U.S. oil and gas industry has created additional revenue, the taxes that come off of that, the millions of jobs that were created so, out so of that. So what does that mean for jobs? How does that, wh whose jobs are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about uh, very high-paying uh, middle and upper middle-class jobs. We're talking about engineers, geologists, geophysicists, uh, production engineers. Uh, we're talking about a lot of jobs out in the field. Uh, so for uh, both lots of, of, of blue-collar jobs, but also a lot of white-collar jobs. So if we lose American energy production, if these companies go bankrupt, um, we're still going to need energy. When, when the economy comes back, right. we're still going to drive our cars. We're going to fly airplanes. And so if, if the American companies are bankrupt, where are we going to get our energy? We're going to get it where we used to get it. And that's from foreign sources mm. like the Middle East, like Russia. Uh, and that's really, to me, Senator, the, the key question the U.S. has to ask itself is, do we want to be energy independent or not? And the answer to that question all policy will flow from whether the answer is yes or no. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Will, because most people, I think, want that energy independence. That's what we always hear our politicians talking about, certainly what I want for us. But what you're describing is the problem here. I just assumed it was all the coronavirus that's upsetting all the global markets. You're saying there's something else in play, which is this price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia going after the United States. What, what does that mean? I mean, is that related to the virus or is that a totally separate issue? 
totally separate. And, and oh. to be fair, the demand destruction that's associated with coronavirus is a much bigger issue today in the near term. If I understand it, globally, the demand for oil in normal times, four months ago, was between 95 and 100 million barrels a day. About 100 million barrels a day. Um, as a result of the economy slowing down and grinding to a halt in the U.S. and, and globally, uh, it's dropped to about, what, about 70 million barrels a day? There's a lot of different estimates out there, but I'd say they range anywhere from a 20 to as much as probably 35 million barrel a day demand destruction. So that would say somewhere between 65 and 80 million barrels a day is currently what hmm. the globe is using today. So, so that had a big negative impact on price. When, when, when a third or more of the demand disappears, right. That you it's never got, happened. It, that that's it's it's beyond without precedent. That is well, that's everybody's car sitting in their driveways and everyone's airplane staying parked at the hangar and nobody nobody flying and and very few people driving. And, and to put that into context, during the great financial crisis, total global demand dropped by only about two and a half to three million barrels a day. Wow. wow. So so we're looking at. Ten times, Ten times as much reduction in demand now as, as during the, the financial that's, meltdown. That's exactly right. Uh, so, but then you've got a second component, which is you have the Saudis and the Russians, right as, as coronavirus is breaking, yes. deciding this is a great opportunity hmm. to screw the Americans, to yes. bankrupt the American energy business. And listen, what you're doing, drill, drilling in, in West Texas shale, the Saudis and Russians have hated it because you passed them up with America as the top producer. And so they're sitting there, if I understand this right, they're taking this as an opportunity. All right, we've got a crisis. Let's put these guys out of business. Let's bankrupt them so that when all is said and done, we're the only players left in the game. Senator, if you think back to when the oil shell revolution started and you look at total global supply growth since then, so about eight or nine years ago, 80% of total global supply growth has come from the United States of America, okay? That's a country that today produces about 13, 14%, maybe 15 if you add in all the NGLs and other liquids. What's an NGL? Uh, I'm sorry, natural gas liquids. Okay. Uh, but let's say the U.S. today produces about 15% of global liquid supply, yet we've accounted for 80% of total global liquids growth over the last decade. That's extraordinary, and that challenged uh, OPEC supremacy, and it challenged Russia's supremacy. And, and it also helped, if I understand right, drive, drive the price down quite a bit. By two-thirds. Mm -hmm. It drove prices. If Had the U.S. share revolution not happened, think about we were at $147 a barrel, and that was pre-oil shells. Prices probably would have gone a lot higher from there. And so that, that huge drop in, in, in what Russia and Saudi, I actually think that they may not have chosen to launch this price war had it not been for coronavirus because both countries, if you look at their ability to, how long can they go in a, in, in with low oil prices? You know, Saudi today is much worse equipped for a long price war than they were back in 2014 during the last big collapse in prices, right? Because they've, they've depleted a lot of their sovereign wealth funds and their, their, their break-even cost today is probably $80 a barrel. And what I mean by that is they fund their entire government out of their oil revenues, hmm. whereas Russia's is only about 40 to $45 a barrel. So Russia- so What they're doing in, in, used to be what we would call an antitrust law, predatory pricing, right. in, in that they're, when they flooded the market with oil and they announced they were going to do that and drove the prices way down, 
they were taking a big hit themselves, but they were doing it to bankrupt their competitors and then sweep in and, and dominate the market. That's right. Um, let, me, let me pause for a second and kind of play devil's advocate. Hmm. You mentioned two technological innovations that helped us access all these massive shale reserves. One was horizontal drilling, but it was combining that with hydraulic fracturing, fracking. Um, look, fracking, I've heard a lot of scary things on the internet about mm -hmm. that. I, I, I've heard it messes with, with the water table. You can light the water um, on fire, it, that's what they say. So, so is, that, is that for real? Should I be worried that, that fracking makes it dangerous to drink the water? No, you know, it, it, there's probably not a bigger set of environmentalists in terms of people that like the outdoors, that like the water, that are, you know, really love the earth than people, the good people you'll find in the oil and gas business, right? And I think there is, uh, the, the, you got to remember when we frack a well, these wells are anywhere between eight and 15,000 feet below the earth's surface. Uh, the surface water that people drink is anywhere from 50 feet to maybe three or 400 feet below right. the surface. Right. So let me make sure I understand that. You got the surface, 50 to 300 feet down. That's not that far down. Right. That's the water table. That's where the water is that we get our drinking water. That's correct. So that's not where you're fracking. No. You're We're fracking- 10,000 um, feet below that. And 10,000 feet, if my math is right, that's two miles. About two miles. Two miles of rock down low. So where you're doing this is two miles away from the water. Right. Um, all right, let me ask a different question. So my daughter, Caroline, you know Caroline, she's 11. She actually said to me last night, she said, you know, every, everything that's, that's happened in this crisis has been really good for the environment. The environment is, is, is cleaning up. <laughs> that's right. And, and listen, it is true. It, if we have no production, if, if all human activity stops, that would be good for the environment. It's just not very good for people. That's right. Let me ask you something. What happens if all these independent energy producers go out of business, the economy gets going again after the crisis, and we're dependent once again on, on the Middle East for oil. Is that good or bad for the environment? You know, it, it's, it's a great question because I think so many people think, you know, hey, well, let's, let's put the U.S. oil and gas producer out of business and because oil and gas is bad for the environment. But that doesn't mean people are going to stop driving their cars. It doesn't mean people are going to stop flying in airplanes. It doesn't mean people are going to stop buying iPhones, which, by the way, take hydrocarbon energy and the, the plastics, a lot of the parts. Everything we have in our modern life, Senator, is revolves around hydrocarbons in some form or fashion. So they're not, the need form is not going to go away. We will just shift the source of where we secure those from. And we'll go back to where we were a decade ago, which is sending hundreds of billions of dollars overseas to people that, quite frankly, don't like us very much, uh, we will lose significant geopolitical And, and, and if I remember right, an awful lot of the 9-11 terrorists who attacked us were from Saudi Arabia they and were. had their funding stores from there. And so fueling the Middle East with billions of American dollars is, 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 is not good for keeping America safe. It's not, and it'll also cause the loss. If you think about the biggest growth engine in U.S. jobs coming out of the great financial crisis was the energy industry. And the... Mm -hmm tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes that the energy industry pays every year to, to school districts, to other municipalities, hospitals, uh, building roads, bridges, infrastructure. 
Um, right. There but, are, but this is just Texas, right? I mean, we're only talking <laughs> Texas jobs. There's not, none anywhere else in the country. No, there's, there's a number of other places throughout the United States, both. Like uh, where? Uh, well, you've got the Bakken. It's in North Dakota. Uh, you've got the DJ that's in Colorado, uh, the powder that's in Wyoming. You've got the Permian, which is New Mexico. You've got several plays in the Scoop Stack in Oklahoma. Uh, that's just yeah. on the oil side. Pennsylvania. The, well, as I was say, on the gas side, the largest gas field in the United States, really one of the largest, maybe the largest in the world, uh, sits under Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and New York. So you also now, got California. California is a huge producer, right? They are a huge producer. In many ways, I can speak to California. It's a, com- a completely lost cause. But of course, we don't want the, the industry to go out here. I just, I see, Will, your point that this is all over the United States, that we're talking about a lot of jobs right. and a lot of industry all over the place. So what do we do now? I mean, looking down at this crisis, you've got the, the markets collapsing, rather. Uh, how do we fix it? What are our options before it's too late? Well, you know, I think we have, again, we have to start with, we, we got to decide we want to fix it because that is uh, part of part of the issue is obviously the, the Saudi and Russian, what they've done and tried to flood the market with additional barrels um, to drive down prices. But the other, but the much bigger issue in the short term is obviously demand destruction associated with coronavirus. And so, you know, at, at these prices, the U.S. independent cannot make money, okay? They just flat can't make money. So there's, there, is, there is that fact. They're just revenues will not exceed their, their expenses. Um, but the other thing we have to also look at as an industry is- uh, and, and that's just simple math, that, 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 that it costs a U.S. producer, what, about $40 a barrel to produce, and so $20 a barrel, it doesn't work if it costs twice as much as the price to produce, you're out of business. At these prices, there's not probably- you know, less than 5% of all locations in the United States are economic at these prices. Hmm. Okay. That's, uh, well, Michael, you know, one of the things, I mean, you asked, what do we do about it? There's there's both a component of it, we get our economy going again. But there's also a component of it, the foreign policy component. I'll tell you, and, and you and I have talked about this, that's something I've been really active in is taking on the Saudis. In my office, I brought my national security team in. I said, all right, I want a list of steps we can take to ratchet up heat on the Saudis to make it more and more painful. We looked mm-hmm. at things like sanctions on individual uh, officials in, in the Saudi oh, government wow. that had directly targeted American businesses and said, if you're going to wage economic warfare on us, well, well, welcome to the game and, and, and you better be prepared for the consequences. Rewind to last week, Friday in the Oval Office, meeting with the president. The president had spoken in the, in the preceding week, both to Putin and MBS, the head of Saudis. He had leaned in hard. And it's interesting, the president didn't start out that way. I talked to the president a couple of weeks ago, and his instinct is actually where you started this show, Michael. He was like, well, you know, aren't low, low oil prices good? Isn't it a good thing? You know, he was thinking, I mean, he's a real estate guy from a consumer's perspective. Uh, until I and others started explaining, listen, we're looking at millions of jobs that go away. And if we destroy America's producing capability, it makes the bad guys who hate us more powerful and it makes America weaker. That's a bad outcome. Well, what the president said is is, is that MBS and Putin had agreed to, to, to stop flooding the market, to reduce their production He tweeted out two weeks ago they were reducing their production 10 million barrels a day. That resulted in oil, just that announcement, going from 20 bucks a barrel to 27. Hmm. In the White House meeting, what he told us is he said it's actually going to be more than than 10. It's going to be more like 15 million. 
And just today, the news broke that they're talking about 20 million. Now, the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see if they actually do it. Yeah. But if they stop flooding the market, if they pull back, that will help. It won't solve the problem. Problem won't get solved until the economy comes back and people are able to drive their cars and fly airplanes. <clears throat> but, but, but if Russia and, and the Saudis follow through and, and, and stop flooding the market, stop taking advantage, in the meantime, before the economy comes back, if they're talking about cutting daily production by, by 20 million barrels, okay, that's great. How much do we need to actually see an impact on the American energy sector? Right. So, you know, going back again, I think there's somewhere between 25 and 40 million barrels of demand destruction right now. And, and so, look, is 10 or 15 or 20 million barrels a lot? It is. It's nowhere close to what we need to really balance supply and demand. And the fact is, is prices were cratering long before this, you know, it became apparent of how bad, because most of the price drop happened when people were thinking demand destruction was three to five million barrels a day. Historically, if a producer, like if OPEC were to flood the market even with a couple million barrels a day of excess supply, meaning only a million or two million barrels difference in supply and demand, prices would drop in half, okay? So wow. what we're talking about here is, it's, it's a number that's really irrelevant, number one. Number two, there's a conditionality on everything. Saudi and Russia, Saudi and Russia both have said, in order to enact these cuts. So, so for the econ wonks out there, there's, there, there's high pr price elasticity. There's very high price elasticity. And, and, if you, and, and Saudi and Russia both said, if, if we're gonna do these cuts, we want contributions from all the major exporting countries in the world, including the US, including Norway, including Mexico. So there's all these other countries that they wanna participate in this. And I think the president's been very clear, the US is not gonna deliver a, a production cut. Now, he has talked about there's gonna be natural shut-ins and declines, and that is gonna be the case. The question is, is that gonna be good enough for the Saudis and for the Russians? The other thing though to keep in mind is, every time OPEC or OPEC Plus has said we're gonna make a cut, there's, generally speaking, not great adherence to those cuts. So they may say they're gonna make a cut, but the actual cuts usually are much less. Hmm. So trust but verify, and maybe even go. don't trust. L let me bring out one other issue, because it's sure. an important issue to, to, to understand. And, and this is something you and I have talked a lot about, and it was the one deliverable that came out of the White House meeting last week. So we spent two hours talking about energy. We talked about pressuring the Saudis and Russians. That seems to have produced some results. But we also talked about access to capital. And, and, and this is a piece where, where I think a lot of people don't understand what's going on, but it's really important. Wall Street, the last couple of years, has been cutting off more and more capital to energy. There, 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 there's a movement called the ESG movement, which is putting pressure on Wall Street to say, we're not gonna fund American energy producers. And the consequence of that has, has, has been really significant. Hmm. So, so well, I, I want us to understand it. Let's say you're a small independent producer. You're in West Texas, you're in New Mexico, you're in Colorado, and you're in Pennsylvania. And the banks decide to cut off your capital. How does that happen? How does that work? Why, why does capital matter and what would that, how would that impact you? So in any oil and gas business, uh, companies obtain capital from banks and what's called RBLs, reserve-based loans. And those RBLs are redetermined every six months, okay? So think about 
public companies, they go issue debt and it's seven, 10, 15, 20 year debt. They don't have to think about refinancing or having that debt called for a very long time. The independent producers in this country, the vast majority of them can't access that kind of public capital to term out their debt. And so they go to banks and the bank loans, if they get redetermined every six months. So historically it's been a very symbiotic system and the banks understand the importance of the business and they understand, you know, they, they loan companies money and they're not gonna change it a lot quickly in terms of the amount they're loaning them. Well, what's happening now, because prices have dropped so much and the banks have, have actually had some significant losses on those RBLs, they've made a decision they're gonna significantly tighten the amount of credit to the sector. But they had made that decision really before this price drop. They'd made that, to your point, they've been getting a lot of pressure from you know ESG-centric groups. So the, the pressure is, energy's bad, it's you know killing the, killing the climate, and so, don't invest in energy companies. Here's the fallacy of that, Senator, is as we said earlier, unless people are gonna quit driving cars and flying in airplanes and buying products, they're gonna keep consuming the energy. You were talking about reserve-based lending, and I, I wanna make an analogy to, to, to say a home mortgage. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you've got a home that, that's valued at $400,000. So, so you get a mortgage, let's say for $350,000. You're paying your mortgage and it's based on the value of the home. Now, now, drawing that analogy to if you've got an energy producer, they get a loan based on the value of their reserves, the reserves that they're, they're producing and going to produce. But you said in the energy business, every six months they come redetermine it. So what that would mean, if you think about your home mortgage, yes. you got a $350,000 mortgage on what you think is a $400,000 house, Suddenly the bank comes to you six months later and says, Michael, your $400,000 house, we now think is a $200,000 <laughs> house. You borrowed $350,000, so write me a check for $150,000 now. And that's what's happening, Senator. That is literally, we're hearing stories wow. every single day about banks going to companies and saying, you need to put equity in and pay down this loan or we're gonna throw your loan over to the workout group. And, and so in terms of deliverables from the White House meeting, what, what I suggested to the president on Friday, I said, Mr. President, there is a real problem with the banks cutting off capital to these American energy producers and ending American energy production. And, and we need to make sure that, that energy is not discriminated against. And, and so I suggested to him, Mr. President, you should ask the energy secretary, Dan Bruyette, who is a Texan and a good friend, ask him to work with Steven Mnuchin, the treasury secretary, to work with the bank regulators to make sure that the banks are not discriminating and bankrupting these energy companies in America and causing millions of people to lose their jobs. And the president said, I'll do it. He directed Dan, Dan was sitting in the meeting, make it happen. I can tell you, I've spoken with Dan almost every single day since then. Uh, in order to make sure that we just have the capital so these guys can survive. Well, that's great news because it does seem, from what I'm hearing, like it's one damn thing after another that the American energy industry has to face. And this leads to my last question. I, uh, we're running out of time here, but I suspect we're running out of time to solve this problem. Will, do you have any sense of the timeline here before we reach a point at which we can't turn this around anymore? Well, if you think about the amount of capital that it took to, to basically get the shell revolution to where it is today, it's about a trillion and a half dollars, okay? And that capital, a lot of it was not spent very efficiently, and public investors lost a lot of money over the last decade mm. on their investments in the energy space. 
The problem is today is that magnitude of capital will never come back to our sector again. Mm. And so if we lose the momentum, the problem with shale wells is they come on at prolific rates, but they decline very rapidly. And so what's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months is U.S. production will decline probably two to two and a half million barrels a day. Okay, that's off a base of 13 million barrels. That's very significant. And we'll never be able to recover that. And if you shut and, in those wells, we don't know if you can open up again. Well, you'll open them up, but there's a big chance you've damaged the reservoirs, okay? Hmm. So they'll come back on less productive. But the bigger problem is, is that in or shale is very expensive to develop. It's like a, it's like a treadmill. And the more you produce, the faster the treadmill goes. And you gotta keep reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting. And as soon as you break that cycle of reinvestment, you can never get back up unless you put a lot of outside capital back into the system again. So for every dollar that came in the door, the energy industry was, was spending about $1.50, okay? That's how we grew production from 5 million barrels a day in 2010 to 13 million barrels a day this month. and. But, but now that that cycle's wow, been broken- Five million to 13 million in, in 10 years. 10 years. But now that cycle's been broken, so you ask the question, how much time do we have? Not much. And that's, that really is the critical, critical question. In terms of this crisis that's hitting the energy sector and the American energy producers, I, I gotta tell you, for me, this is very personal and real. Hmm. Um, as you know, I grew up in Houston. Houston's my right. hometown. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents owned a small business, and it was in the oil services world. It was a seismic data processing company. So my parents are both mathematicians, computer programmers. And in 1986, oil collapsed. It dropped to $7 a barrel. Uh, Texas went into a full-on depression. I, I was in high school at the time. Hmm. And, and I still remember my dad. It was one Monday. Now, this, his was a small, small business. He had 25 employees. Um, I still remember the Monday where he had to lay off 19 of the 25 oh, employees. He really? came home. I've never seen my father look as unhappy. He looked like he'd been beaten with a stick. And he had employees arguing with him, going, Raphael, I, I'm not going to leave. No, I'm going to stay. This, this, this company is my home. Oh. And he said, look, I don't have the money to pay you. You have a family. And so my parents went bankrupt. We lost the company. We lost our home, the home I grew up in, and it's, uh, look, I, I've lived yeah. through that firsthand. Well, you know, it, it really shows you that in the price of oil, there is a whole lot more going on. There are a lot of jobs. There are a lot of families. There's an entire sector of the American economy that's being destroyed. It has implications for national security. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you, Will. Thank you so much for uh, giving your insight. And Senator, I, I had never heard that story. I mean, it really brings it home on a personal level. And we'll see. Ho uh, thank you, by the way, for your leadership and going to the president, trying to turn this around. We will just have to wait and see in the coming days. Hopefully we turn it around before it's too late. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.